Welcome to the journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Michelle Hennessy, and this week, is Ireland facing the threat of winter power blackouts? Well, it's all about energy these days. Where will we get it? How will people afford it? Can we do it more sustainably? And now we're hearing warnings of potential blackouts this winter. The wider fallout of Russia's invasion of Ukraine has left European countries scrambling for new energy suppliers. For Ireland, this could mean significantly increased competition as we approach the winter months, when demand for the fuels needed to generate electricity is at its peak. But are we really facing blackouts? And what can we do to prepare for potential energy shortages? To talk us through it, I'm joined by Dr. Maureen Lynch, Energy Economics Researcher and Senior Research Officer at the Economic and Social Research Institute. Maureen, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Can you start by telling us how secure is Ireland's electricity grid at the moment? Yeah, so I think if we look at it in historical context, we've basically beaten our targets for security. Now, there are different reasons for grid not being secure. You can talk about it not being secure from a physical point of view. You know, we just don't have enough wires. We don't have enough transmission to get electricity around the place or we don't have enough responsive generation on the system in order to make sure that we maintain secure electricity supply. But In this context, what we're really talking about is, do we have enough generation available to meet all of the demand? And historically, what we've done is we've beaten our targets. So you have to come up with some kind of a metric that says, at what point are we sufficiently secure and at what point aren't we? And the metric that we work off is called loss of load expectation, L-O-L-E. So load in this sense really means demand. So what we're saying is, if we have enough generation to meet all of our demand all the time, up to eight hours per year. So in other words, up to eight hours per year, we can shed some demand. So long as we meet that target, then we're as secure as we want to be. Whereas historically in the last decade or so, we haven't even come close to eight hours per year. So you could say that we've been overspecking the system, but now getting into the question that you originally asked, coming into this winter, we are actually facing a situation where we may not have enough supply to meet all of the demand. So we've had increasing demand and we haven't had the supply coming on that we wanted. So this winter, we might actually see ourselves coming up against that eight hours load of loss of load expectation potentially. We'd have to wait and see. And something people may not have really thought about much until recently is where and how the electricity we rely on is being generated. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so we have one electricity um, market which covers the whole island of Ireland. And within that, we have two electricity systems, one in the north, one in the south. They are weakly interconnected. So we have some power lines that run over the border. And it certainly is the case that electricity that's generated in the north can be consumed in the south and vice versa but they're they are treated as two different systems in that we have two system operators one in the south called airgrid and one in the north called the system operator of northern ireland or sony and what they do is they dispatch all the units to keep the lights on now what are those units well 
we've got an increasing penetration of wind and solar electricity. So because it's free to generate wind and solar electricity at the time, obviously it's not free to build them, but once they're built, it's free to generate, they tend to get dispatched first. So what that means is that if there's any wind on the system, we're going to use it. We're unlikely to kind of waste wind energy or spill wind energy or whatever. The only reason we do that would be for security or technical reasons. So we've got a huge portion of our demand, 40% in rising supplied from those renewable energy sources. Then on top of that, uh, the next most frequent fuel that we use is gas. And we have a lot of gas units, north and south. We've got some big ones like Whitegate and Cork. Um, and we've got some really teeny tiny ones that uh, the advantage of them is that they can usually start up very quickly. So they can get from being shut off, doing absolutely nothing to generating at full power within five or 10 minutes. And that can be really helpful where if the wind goes away suddenly, you can just ramp up one of those small gas generators. They could be less than 50 megawatts, so quite small. Um, whereas the likes of Whitegate is over 400 megawatts. Then we have other generators. Some We've got our coal generators in County Clare. We've got Money Point. We've got more coal generation in the north. And then we've got an oil station called Tarbert. These are all owned by different generation companies. Some of them are owned by ESB Powergen, but others are owned by Board Gosh, by SSE, by Energia, all of these different companies. So that's where all of our demand or all of our supply comes from. And what the system operators do is they just decide which units do we turn on and off when in order to meet the demand. We also have two interconnectors to Great Britain. We can use them to import import electricity from Great Britain to give us more supply and then we can also use them to export electricity to Great Britain when we have a surplus of supply ourselves usually from wind. We're relying on a supply of gas through the UK from Norway to generate electricity. Is there anything set in stone with the UK or Norway when it comes to our supply? Do we have any guarantees or is it all dependent on the supplies at that particular time? So when it comes to the gas itself, we do have intergovernmental agreements with um, Great Britain. So all of our gas, well, some of it comes from Carib, but the rest of it comes via one pipeline from Great Britain. And uh, they in turn, as you said, get their gas from Norway. And we do have intergovernmental agreements that they won't unilaterally shut off uh, gas supply to Ireland. When it comes to electricity supply, we don't have the same kind of agreements in place saying we will or won't export electricity at any given time. But I suppose electricity is, um, you might have some more back and forth. We've seen Norway has kind of recently announced that they may not export as much electricity as they had been. Now, Norway has so much hydropower, it's really helpful. It, it's almost like a great big battery that the rest of Europe can use. However, as regards Ireland and Britain, and indeed the rest of Europe, the way it, flows over electricity interconnectors are usually sorted as just by means of the price. So if you've got a lot of generation in one country and you've got a deficit of generation in another, then obviously the country that has a lot of generation right now, that's going to put downward pressure on prices. And the country that doesn't have much generation will see very high prices. So you're going to want to sell your electricity in the, the country that has the highest price. And you're going to do that by trading over an interconnector. So that tends to be how interconnectors um, are operated on the electricity side. And I mentioned earlier this kind of scramble by European countries to find new energy suppliers. Are we more or less exposed than other EU countries? We have an awful lot more dependence on fossil fuels than the average European country. And that's across the board. 
Um, so that's across kind of heating and transport and electricity. When it comes to electricity itself, we have a decent proportion coming from renewable electricity. So we're maybe less exposed in terms of the fossil fuel impact on our electricity system. However, we do obviously require a good deal of gas to back up our electricity generation. And the main way in which we're maybe more exposed than European countries is when we try to decide how much electricity generation we need on the system. So how many power plants and all of that kind of thing. We ignore wind and solar, essentially. We are saying we want whatever the peak demand is 6,000, 6,500 megawatts plus a little bit extra. So we set that as our target for how much supply we want on the system. And we say that that supply more or less has to be conventional generation. So we never want to be relying on a situation where if the wind doesn't blow, we're in trouble. We always want to have enough actual power plants on the system to meet our peak demand. And that's where we're maybe more exposed than other European countries, because for various reasons, we don't have enough actual physical power plants over and above the wind generation on the system to meet our peak demand. It's going to be very tight this winter and next winter compared to previous years. And people may have seen reports from the UK, perhaps more alarming than the ones we've seen here about potential blackouts and higher bills. So how does our situation compare to the UK or are we kind of in the same boat because there's that link there? I mean, we're kind of similar to the UK in that sense, but it's not so much because of the link. It's more because of there are various things going on on both systems that have led to maybe under delivery of the conventional generation that we would have expected to see. So it's not so much because of the link. However, it does feed in, in that if there are times when Great Britain is under stress, they're going to be less likely to export to us and vice versa. But then there are other things that can happen. So, for example, we had some system alerts last week. And the fact that uh, the interconnector to Great Britain just stopped working was behind uh, some of those alerts. So it wasn't really anything to do with we have enough power plants and it was more to do with the fact that oh goodness me 500 megawatts that we expected to be able to import from great britain now we just can't because the actual wire was broken and you mentioned the amber alerts that we've had lately can you explain what is an amber alert yeah so when you're operating the system you want to keep a certain amount of what we call reserve. So this is stuff that can respond very quickly. So there are some great big units that they might be really big, um, hundreds of megawatts big, but they can't start generating um, at kind of straight away. They need time in order to turn on their unit, get going, get warmed up and be able to generate electricity. That can take a few minutes or it can take a few hours, depending on the unit. Now, in real time, we are constantly shifting and shifting and shifting the supply in order to match the demand. If you have more or less electricity generated at any point in time than the amount of electricity that's demanded, then that can cause huge technical problems. So that means that every time the demand changes a little bit, the supply has to change a little bit. And in order to be able to change your supply a little bit, you need to have reserves. So what that means is it's no good saying we've got 400 megawatts extra on the system if that extra 400 megawatts is shut off and isn't available for six hours. So you actually need to make sure that not only are we generating enough electricity to meet all the demand, we also have enough reserve electricity that's online that's ready to generate if something happens. So if there's a big spike in demand or if maybe the wind drops off or if the interconnector goes out or if a generator goes out or whatever. 
Now that reserve margin is calculated on the basis of several things run into that metric, but it's essentially a target that the system operators have all the time, which is not only do we want to meet the demand, we also want to meet this reserve target. Now, when those system alerts were triggered the other week, what that was telling us was that the reserve target was not being met. So we still had enough generation to meet all of our demand, but we didn't have enough of that reserve to meet our reserve target. So what that does is it signals to the system, to the market, and in particular to certain types of energy users, you know what, we might be in a little bit of trouble. So there are some energy users that can maybe curtail their demand. That's a good time for them to do that. It also sends a kind of a longer run signal which is if you were about to turn your unit off maybe to do some maintenance you might want to not do that because we could be calling on you so those are the alerts that we saw um, a few weeks ago it's not unusual to see these alerts because if you never ever ever ate into your reserve margin then that would suggest that your reserve margin is too big if I can put it that way so we certainly do expect to use our reserve margin and that means we don't expect to always meet our reserve targets what was unusual about it was the fact that it happened in the middle of August. Usually when we see system alerts, it tends to be in the winter when we have a lot of demand on the system. Is there anything that we as consumers are expected to do when one of these alerts is issued or is it really just a warning for the market? I mean, there's no kind of explicit mechanisms through which consumers kind of feed in when a system alert is triggered. Consumers for the most part, just get their electricity on a a kind of a fixed tariff. So when there's loads and loads of wind and not very much demand, you pay the exact same to turn on your dishwasher as if you turn it on when there's hardly any wind and when the demand is really high and when two of the power plants have fallen over. So while it certainly would be great for consumers to react to prices, there aren't many explicit mechanisms available for them to do so. I also don't really know of anyone who tends to kind of log onto the AirGrid app on a regular basis to see, are we having a system alert right now? But um, if there's anyone out there who wants to do that, I'm not going to lie, it would probably help because things are tight this winter. So what are the main factors coming into this winter that dictate whether or not we're going to get into difficulties with our electricity supplies? What we're looking at really is the fact that we just don't have enough physical generators on the system to potentially meet our peak demand. Now, that's something that we can't really do anything about. We knew that we would have trouble. We knew that there were some units that were contracted in the market to show up by this winter that didn't show up. And the regulators went out and they procured emergency extra electricity generation. But for various reasons, it's not going to be available by this winter. Those reasons are legal and you still have to clear all of the environmental criteria and that kind of thing. So it's just like even these emergency generators that you're supposed to be able to turn on very quickly. It's just the case that you can't get a generator up at short notice. It takes time. And unfortunately, that is the main thing leading into this winter that we know about. However, there are other things that might go on. So Like I said, we never want to be relying on wind or solar to keep the lights on. We always want to make sure we have enough non-renewable generation to keep the lights on. However, if it's the case that the wind blows our way and during those times when we have very high demand, we also have a lot of wind this winter, we could be fine. We could get away with it. But if it's the case that we have maybe a cold snap, they tend to coincide with very calm weather. 
And then obviously in winter, you have limited sunshine and the peak demand in winter tends to be between kind of five and seven o'clock in the evening. So in December, there, there really is no sun at that time. So if it's the case that our high demand periods coincide with a lack of renewable generation or potentially if they were to coincide with the interconnector being on outage or with some of our power stations being on outage, that is where, where we could end up with difficulties in our electricity supply this winter. And how then does the government or the regulator make sure that we actually have enough electricity to meet demand? Yeah, so the way it works is there are different, um, I suppose, pots of money that you can access as uh, an electricity generator. And one of them is called the capacity remuneration mechanism. So when I was talking about this target that we like to have, so we say, what's the peak demand that we expect to see this year? And then we add a little bit onto that to account for reserve and to account for units going out and whatever. It's AirGrid's job really to calculate that number. Um, and then the regulator will validate it and that kind of thing. This is actually not as much to do with government as you'd think. Government does not go around turning on and off um, power generators. There's an awful lot of talk about, oh, why did we shut the peat stations? I mean, you know, the government didn't drive down to Offaly and, and shut the gates. And that was that. That's not how it worked. These were commercial decisions made by electricity generators that generate in the Irish market. And what determines whether or not you you could set up an electricity generation station tomorrow if you wanted, or you could try. And what determines whether or not energy companies want to generate in the Irish market really comes down to, well, can they make money doing so? And if it's the case that the prices are so low that you're not going to make money, then they're going to up sticks and leave. And if the, if it's the case that the prices are so high that there is huge profits to be made, then everyone's going to want to come here and set up an electricity generation station. Um, so there's always this tension between making sure that generators can make enough money out of the market without making so much that consumers are being fleeced and that's really the regulator's job one of the regulator's many jobs what government can do is it can set overall policy so things like they had a statement out recently on kind of the government's position on on data centers and it went from a kind of a broad welcoming of data centers to saying well what we would like to see is data centers that generate jobs, data centers that have capability to um, produce their own electricity on site, that kind of thing. However, the government, again, can't go around opening up or shutting down data centers. It's still up to data center operators to decide whether or not to show up or not. But if you're making a decision on whether or not to build a power plant or whether or not to open up a data center or whether or not to do anything else, you're going to be keeping an eye on those kind of documents released by government to say, well, where's the policy going here? What's the support like? What's the future looking like on the Irish system? So that's how government can feed in. Government more kind of sets the broad background and then the regulator and air grid do the actual calculations to try to figure out how much generation we need. And how do the people generating the electricity make money out of it? Is it all about pricing really? So there's kind of three main ways in which they make money. So the first is in the energy market. So this is probably the simplest one to understand. So this is you just say, I will sell you 300 megawatt hours of electricity. And the price I want for that is 40 euro per megawatt hour or whatever it is. So they just sell energy the same way you'd sell anything else, the way you'd sell packs of crisps, cinema tickets, anything you like. You just say, here's how much I'll give you. And here's the price I want for it. Um, this is quite simplified now, but the way it more or less works is 
Airgrid then says, okay, well, the demand right now is 2000 megawatts. So I'm going to dispatch the cheapest 2000 megawatts of generation available. And then when the demand goes up to 2500 megawatts, they say, okay, now I'm going to dispatch the next 500 megawatts, the next cheapest one, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's the way it works. You just tell Airgrid, here's how much I want to be paid when I generate. And then Airgrid tells you to generate when the demand um, requires you and you get paid at the market price. So that's um, the first way generators get their money. But then the second way is the capacity market. So that's what I was talking about when Airgrid goes and decides, here's what we expect the peak demand to be. And in that case, you're able to basically bid for what's called a capacity contract or a reliability option is the technical word, but we, we don't worry about that. And in that, what you do is you, you're essentially saying, I am willing to be available to generate on the Irish market at a particular price. Now, you may or may not be called on to generate because that depends on whether or not we need you, whether or not the demand is so high that we need you. But the point is you're available if necessary. And the idea is that you you sign contracts with enough generators so that the total availability is more than that peak demand that we talked about. And that means, in theory at least, that even when we get to peak demand, we should have enough units on the system in order to be able to generate electricity. And in return for that capacity contract, in return for that kind of promise to be available, you get a payment. And that payment is called a capacity payment. So that's the second way you make money out of the electricity market. So the first, you make money on the basis of what you generate. And the second one, you make money out of the basis that you're available to generate, whether or not you do generate. And then the third source of remuneration for generators, it's quite small, but it needs to get bigger. And this is, you may not be providing power, but you might be providing services that enable us to get all the power we need. So this is for those units we talked about that are able to start up super quick in response to the wind um, dying down or indeed units that are able to turn off super quick in response to the wind ramping up or something like that, you might get extra payments because you're essentially providing a service to the grid. The fact that you're so flexible is more valuable to the grid than an inflexible unit that takes six hours to turn on. So you get an extra payment for that. And there are all sorts of different products that AirGrid essentially buys from generators that are able to do things that enable AirGrid to operate the system securely. I guess the big problem coming into this winter is that that second mechanism, the capacity market, it cleared at very low prices in recent years, which is great for consumers because it means that we're not spending as much on capacity as we were in previous years. But the problem is that it looks like maybe it cleared at unsustainably low prices because there were a lot of units that got a contract to generate this winter, but that actually haven't shown up. And instead, they've just paid a penalty. And that's one of the reasons why we're, we're facing this supply crunch. So it would seem that that particular area of the market from which generators get money may need a little bit of work because it doesn't seem to have delivered the supply we expected or required. Now, I want to talk a little bit about what blackouts could look like if we did have them. When was the last time in Ireland that we had deliberate blackouts? So I suppose, first of all, I just want to kind of clarify the what a blackout means. So if your local transformer blows up, you're going to get a blackout, as in suddenly your electricity supply is not going to, to be there. But that would have been a blackout because of a technical reason, a kind of a localised technical reason. 
the blackouts we're talking about in this context are where we simply don't have enough supply on the whole system. It's not a local issue, but on the whole system in order to meet the demand. So in that case, as a last resort, Airgrid issues what's called a demand interruption instruction. So this is a blackout that's not triggered by some kind of technical reason, but it's triggered by insufficient supply. And the way it works is you can kind of think of it as like demand being a very, very expensive generator. So after you've turned on every generator that's an actual generator, then you and you still don't have enough to meet demand, then you turn down demand a little bit instead of turning supply up a little bit. And when's the last time we had deliberate blackouts? Well, this gets back to that eight hour LOLE we were talking about before. And because like what that eight hours really refers to is kind of eight hours when we would have um, one of these demand interruption instructions or a deliberate blackout. Um, and I don't think we've hit that eight hours. I don't think we've had above zero hours for like maybe a decade. I'm a bit out on that. But the thing about them as well is they tend to be quite, hopefully they're short lived. You know, they're always a last resort and it's always only until something else happens. So only until the wind picks up or another unit comes on or whatever. So it could actually sh last a shorter amount of time than one of the blackouts that you might have because there was a storm and a tree fell or whatever. You know, anytime we have a storm, it can take ESB networks up to a few days to restore power to the whole country. Whereas these um, demand interruption instructions, highly unlikely that we'd see them for a few days. It might just be for like an hour or two in order to get us through that peak demand period. If we were looking at more lengthy blackouts rather than those that last just a couple of hours, what effect could that have on people's health? I'm thinking especially of older people in those colder winter months. Yeah, I mean, loss of electricity supply is a huge issue. It's a distributional issue. It does impact more on vulnerable consumers, um, elderly people, and also people with certain medical conditions. So anybody who needs to use the likes of a dialysis machine, or there are lots of people with disabilities who use technology in order to enable them to do lots of things, but they might need to, to charge up a particular machine after six hours. Um, so these are the people that lack of electricity supply can impact on. Now, we don't want to get too excited about these demand interruption instruction blackouts because certainly any blackout is inconvenient. But um, one of these ones, like I said, is highly unlikely to kind of last hours or days. So the interruption is probably not as great as it would be after, say, something like a big storm or even something like some technical fault. Um, we haven't done any particular analysis on what short-term interruptions to electricity supply would mean. We do know that households place a very high value on secure electricity supply. So that essentially means that you're willing to pay a very high price rather than turn your lights off, particularly at certain times of the day. Um, so what that would suggest to us because we know that households place a high value on elect secure electricity supply, what that would suggest is that insecure electricity supply is quite costly. But the specifics of how it plays out in one household versus another is actually quite difficult to test. And you can imagine why when you consider, well, what we'd actually have to do is we'd have to go deliberately interrupting supply to a bunch of people and then measuring the impact it had. And I don't think you'd get ethical approval for such an experiment. So we have to kind of use secondary methods to try to get at the impact it might have. And what about critical infrastructure like hospitals, prisons and so on? How is that ring fenced or do they need their own power generation? 
Yeah. So again, when it comes to the the kind of the deliberate um, demand interruptions, we specifically don't disconnect areas that would have critical infrastructure like a hospital, like emergency services, or also things you might think of like wastewater treatment plants and, and water treatment plants in general. We really want all of those things to have access to electricity. Um, However, it is the case that, like I said, something like a storm or a technical fault could also stop those infrastructural units from having the electricity they need. And so a lot of them have backup power on site. So in the event that there was a storm or something like that, um, hospitals are able to generate their own electricity in many cases. So um, we do avoid them for the purposes of load balancing, but that's not to say that they're completely immune to blackouts, but they have their own ways of dealing with it. So what happens to the grid during a blackout? Is it purely putting a stop to the use of any of our energy reserves? So the way it works is there is a kind of a lottery. So every single day, AirGrid has a kind of a different area where in a last resort, this is the area that will have a blackout or a demand interruption. Um, And it changes every day in order to spread it across the country in a kind of a fair and equal manner. And yeah, what it means is you go to turn on the lights and they don't turn on. So you essentially just interrupt supply to a certain geographic area. And again, you make sure that that geographic area, it doesn't include a hospital or a piece of critical infrastructure. You would hope that it doesn't last very long and it almost certainly doesn't last very long because the peaks in Ireland tend to be, um, the Irish system is very peaky in that we have a really big peak in winter evenings, but it's short enough. Um, Whereas other systems, if you look at say, a country that has an awful lot of air conditioning demand, their peak tends to be in the middle of a summer day and it can last a long time because you can think peak air conditioning usage could be from kind of 11 o'clock in the morning until three or four o'clock in the afternoon. Whereas in Ireland, the peak tends to be just kind of like that hour around when everybody's coming home, turning on lights, making the dinner, that kind of thing. So for some consumers, they would just find that they simply do not have electricity supply for that time. But then as soon as the rest of the demand drops off, they can be brought back online at that point. And what are the steps that would be taken before we'd reach that stage of blackouts? Well, Airgrid would continue to do their job, which is they dispatch all of the units as they're available. And if they have to eat into their reserve margins, they do so. And then the last thing they would do is shed demand because we essentially assume that shedding demand is like turning on a generator that costs something like 10,000 euro per megawatt hour to generate. Um, And there's no generator on the system that has a cost that high. So the steps that are taken is essentially you turn on all the generation you possibly can. You import as much over the interconnectors as you possibly can. And you try to ease whatever congestion bottlenecks you can in order to get any extra wind generation onto the system. If you have any batteries on the system, and we do, and we also have a pumped storage unit, Turlock Hill, you get all of those to discharge. You make sure none of them are charging. You want them all to discharge instead. And then if after all of those steps, we still don't have enough supply available, then at that point, you're going to need to shed some demand. 
And without wanting to engage in scaremongering on the podcast, I am wondering, since we're facing into a winter of potential fuel shortages or rising prices, and also this possible threat of blackouts, should people be doing things like stocking up on fuels, like oil or gas for heating? And power-wise, is there an argument for investing in something like a large battery, for example, to run something like a laptop off if their power is gone for an extended period of time? So in terms of stocking up on the fuel, I would say no. I mean, the problems around solid fuel are really, you know, kind of coal is about as available as it's ever been. Same with with oil and that kind of thing. It's just very expensive. So the only thing that maybe there's the potential for a physical lack of supply would be gas. And the only reason there might be potential for a physical lack of supply is you know, if if Russia just decides to turn off the gas altogether. However, I don't know many people with gas storage in their back garden. So even if we wanted to to stock up on gas, we couldn't. So I would say when it comes to fuel, I don't think there's any point in hoarding. The only way you can maybe get anything out of it is if you happen to to beat the market in terms of you buy when it's low and 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 then you're able to use it when the price goes high but if you want to do that just just go ahead and invest in the market <laughs> on electricity i don't really think investing in batteries is necessarily a good idea because of the possibility of blackouts and the reason for that is because the probability of a blackout happening in your particular area, as opposed to the probability of a blackout happening at all, is so low um, that you would need to put an unbelievably high value on a secure electricity in order to think it's worth investing in a battery to get you over the hour or maybe the two hours when a blackout might hit your particular area. However, in general, are batteries a good investment for a household? Possibly. If you have solar electricity generation in your home in particular, and if your usage pattern is such that you're actually out for a lot of the day, then maybe the economics of installing a battery might stack up for you because your battery can charge up during the day when you're not at home, and then you come home and you use that energy from your battery. However, it's certainly the case that we're looking into schemes that would enable you to sell your surplus electricity to the grid. So it might be better to do it that way, where the electricity that you're not using, you just go ahead and sell it instead of having to invest in a battery. And also, even if it, is, even if it does make sense to invest in a battery, that would be more for climate reasons and financial reasons and not really for security reasons. I think if you're really, really, really scared about blackouts, probably a better thing to do would be to just buy a diesel generator and stick it in your back garden and you can run off that if necessary. If you're just if you're just so afraid that you're, you know, kind of there's going to be a blackout at the time of the big football match, at least you can still plug your TV into your generator. But I don't necessarily recommend doing that either. I think it's probably overkill. Well, you've given people a lot to think about there. Thanks so much for coming on to the podcast and explaining it all so clearly to us. No problem. Always a pleasure. Thanks to everyone who listened to this episode of The Explainer. And thanks again to Moran for joining me. This episode was brought to you by producers Eva Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you liked what you heard and you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. You can head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber or you could leave us a rating and a review as well if you're feeling generous wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.